You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. So now I often have a lot of shopping carts that are full and I'm about to press buy and I go through the work and I'm so proud of myself when I don't buy it because it's trying to fill an inner void with external material goods and you can't fill something that is on the inside with something on the outside. Her Money is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When it comes to your money, empowerment is key. You need confidence in your ability and your strategy. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today because it's time to take control of your financial future and feel empowered for what's ahead. Hey everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Let me just start this week's episode by asking all of you a question. How are you? And I mean it. How are you really? So many of us, we've had incredibly difficult years. We've lost jobs. We've lost loved ones. And while we've grieved, in many cases, we've also dealt with it by doing what women often do. We just soldier on. We put on a brave face. We keep doing what needs to be done to support our bosses or children or spouses or parents. The list goes on. But today, I'm going to ask that we just stop and take a minute to get real about how we can start spending more time on ourselves and by taking a critical look at our mental health. In a new study from the University of Buffalo, 19% of women reported clinically significant depressive symptoms during the pandemic. And according to a study from the New York Times, more than half of mothers with children under the age of 18 have reported a marked decrease in their mental health over the last two years. The Buffalo research referred to this as a silent epidemic that has resulted in worsening mental health for women all over the country. And what that means, I think, is that even if you haven't struggled yourself, you know women who have. There has been a growing chorus in recent years to increase the dialogue around mental health, to destigmatize the trouble, which I gotta say, I love because for so long, mental health was like money. It was something that you just didn't talk about. If you were struggling, it was a source of shame. And I'm really grateful because we've got a lot of mental health struggles in my own family that the tide is turning and that more of us are seeking help when we need it and realizing that we are not alone. And it's that phrase, you're not alone, that today's guest wants us all to hear. So I am thrilled to introduce all of you to Melissa Bernstein. Melissa is the co-founder of the wildly successful toy company, Melissa and Doug. She is the creator of 5,000 toys, which have sold for billions of dollars, and she is also the mother of six. Melissa has also been on a decades-long journey to triumph over her own anxiety and depression and despair. And in 2020, she launched Lifelines, which is a website filled with content and tools to help women struggling with their mental health with a simple goal to get help and support for as many women as possible. Melissa, thank you so much for being here today. Oh my gosh, I'm so honored to be here, Jean. I want to hear about your incredible career, but let's not start there. First, let's start with that message. You are not alone. Why did that resonate with you so much? And why do you think it resonates with other women? Gosh, when we put up a facade and as you said, soldier ahead and deny the truth of who we are, ultimately that leads to a deep abandonment of ourselves. And, you know, for me personally, I literally felt like the only tree in the forest. You know, there was no grove in my life. It was like I felt utterly and completely alone. Even though there were people all around me, I just had this deep existential abandonment of myself. And you've said in other interviews that nobody would have ever guessed that, that you 
had this incredibly successful career. You were a happily married mother. You had six kids. Nobody would have guessed that you were fighting this darkness. What was going on in your life? Yeah, to be honest, I didn't even guess it because from the time I was born, the despair was so deep that the only way I could survive and still be here today was to deny, resist, and disassociate from all emotion, literally everything I felt. And I think some people can relate to this. You know, my coping mechanism became perfectionism, performance, pleasing others, and sort of how I behaved and looked being socially acceptable. So because I couldn't deal with the overwhelming feelings, and I was told by society that feeling what I felt wasn't right and was wrong for a child to be thinking such dark, despairing thoughts, I just anchored to the opposite. So I kind of went through life, you know, thinking that that was the way I had to be and developed a lot of a, a lot of really damaging behaviors because of it, eating disorders and perfectionism that was so great that it threatened to suffocate me with the level of performance I keep needed to attaining to make myself feel validated. So it wasn't healthy by any means, but I wasn't conscious of the fact that I was engaging in these behaviors till much later on. I wonder, and I'm thinking of all the amazing puzzles and other toys that you and Melissa and Doug developed and that entertain my children for so many years. I'm wondering, do you think you gravitated to toys because toys were happy? You know, it is the incredible irony of my life because I believed, you know, before Melissa and Doug, I believed I could only create dark, despairing things. And that is all I created. You know, I created from the time I was like two years old, but it was like, musical compositions in minor keys. And it was really deep, dark questions about the meaning of life and what happens if we're all going to die. And I kind of had the whole light side of myself turned off. And I thought I was only capable of channeling darkness. So toys really was just an incredible accident. I mean, Doug and I, you know, we were just dating and we started jobs right after college that were both, I would say, not consistent with our true essence. And I especially was really struggling. I was finding it hard to get out of bed each day because I didn't feel like I was thriving. I felt like a flower without sunlight and water. And I grew more and more despairing, thinking like, what is the purpose of what I'm doing? And we decided to go away for a weekend, hopefully decide that there's something more meaningful for us to do with our energy and we honed it on kids because we love kids and we felt like there weren't enough products that could be that spark to unleashing imagination. There weren't enough champions of open-ended play. So I think it was somewhat an accident to go from only creating darkness to realizing that I actually had the capacity to channel this exact same despair into pure light through envisioning and creating these toys. How did you find your way from the darkness and despair and into a place where you were able to manage it? It's an amazing question. I mean, ultimately, it took three paths. It took traditional psychotherapy that allowed me to go into those negative mindsets that made me so angry and so believing that no one loved me, that no, I couldn't trust anyone. So it was a little bit of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Then it was philosophy and moving from being what is called an existential nihilist, who is someone, this is the darkest anyone can be, who believes there's no meaning to existence. And like we as individuals have no ability to make meaning in a meaningless existence to becoming an existentialist who actually believes that we do as individuals have supreme power to make choices and derive meaning in our lives. So I really moved from feeling like I was a victim and had no ability to make change to the opposite, like literally 180 degree difference and taking 
control of my life and choosing to make meaning and now becoming a champion to help others make meaning in their lives. And then spirituality as well. And sort of the idea of following these beautiful spiritual teachings that really show that suffering is actually a created phenomenon in our own mind. And we can very easily, again, a little bit of existentialism, we can take control of our suffering and choose not to suffer any longer. It sounds like something that so many women need, especially now. You started Lifelines in 2020. Was that because you saw what the pandemic was doing to women in terms of isolation and emotional burden? Or was this something that was being planned? You know, no, it was really just happened to be the timing. I mean, for me, and I think for all of us, you know, there's a reason that we have these middle-aged crises because for so many years, we're putting on the show. We're like the dam is repressing the water. And I think there comes a point for all of us when that authentic cry of our soul to be seen gets so loud that we can't deny it any longer. And for me, you know, it was the suffering became greater than my resistance to change. So I reached this point where, you know, I was denying that I needed to do anything differently. I was fighting it. I didn't want to admit that I was flawed in any way and that I needed help. And finally, I became so exhausted by resisting who I was and that work I was going to need to do to accept myself as who I was. The dam broke and it started to leak. And I basically, it was like a a moment of sort of the metaphor of falling to your knees and saying like, I surrender. I'm done. I need help. I can't do this alone. And that's when, you know, I needed to enlist the help of a, a trained professional. I decided to come out to the world and say, the person that made all these bright, shiny toys, it's part of me. I mean, that inner child is the key to us living, fulfilling, and meaningful lives. But There's also another part of me that's really dark and channels that darkness into this positive creation that helps bring my life meaning. I just want to say thank you for doing it. I mean, and thank you for speaking out because I think it's important that we see people that we look at as role models and say, hey, you know, they're in it too. They're struggling too. And we don't often get the opportunity to do that. I've had the chance to interview Michael Phelps a few times. And I just, I admire it so much because the more that you're in the public light, I think the harder it is to acknowledge that all of this is going on inside of you. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. And you know, so many people believe, I think, I wanted to shatter so many myths. And we we did a whole series in our workshops that was like myth busters. And one of them is that, you know, when you have all these material things, right? When you have, you know, a $600 million toy company and six children and the husband you've always dreamed of and like everything is good, you must be happy. And, you know, I wanted to show that if you don't feel hole in your soul and you have an emptiness and an unworthiness, nothing you get externally can fill that hole. So for me, you know, I want to be an example of the fact that this pursuit of happiness is an utter sham. What we need to do is to take that inward journey and accept ourselves in totality so we can truly feel that love for ourselves that enables us to then share it with others. You mentioned eating disorders, and I know I understand, having had one in high school, how those things go hand in hand. I'm wondering if you ever had any sort of manifestation with money. We often hear about how people shop to try to fill themselves up. Oh my gosh. So I don't even call it an eating disorder. What I had was a control disorder. I felt that my fate, mortality, was so out of my control that in essence, and I couldn't deal with that. I couldn't deal with the fact that I would one day die. And I believed that I I could thwart that death. And because I started to realize I couldn't, I controlled everything. 
So money was one of the main things I controlled in addition to my diet, my exercise, my performance, my looks. And it's manifested in sort of two ways. I would say early on, it was a frugality that was like crazy and a denial of pleasure. I would like pinch my pennies so tightly because I wanted to like save them. And I would, when I was really in my desperate times, I was a student in Japan, I was studying abroad and I would go and just walk the aisles of food stores and department stores and look at all the things I could buy. And I would sort of hold my money, but deny myself buying any of them. So it was like a form of denial. And it was like a punishment, like here, Melissa, you have it, but you're not allowed to spend it. I really punished myself for so many years and and had, you know, what I also call pleasure anorexia. I believed I was so unworthy that I needed to punish myself by denying myself any form of sustenance or pleasure. So I'm fortunate I'm still here to talk about it because I came very close to not being here because, you know, you can't deny yourself sustenance for too long without actually not going forward. And then now I would say, What started to happen, because I had so many years of denial, I started to closet buy beautiful things secretively to like be able to hold them. This was more like years later and feel that I could have beautiful things, but not show them to anyone and just keep them like stashed away so that I could kind of look through them as like a a secretive need to give myself that pleasure. So it came out in like a almost a shopaholic type thing where I was just buying these things to feel like that sense of giving myself pleasure that I disallowed for so long. Have you found a balance? I would say I've learned to deal with the feeling. So what would happen is I'd buy these things, right? And I'd look forward to getting them. It was like all about the adrenaline boost in in knowing they were coming. And then the minute I had them in my grasp, the pleasure would go and I'd need another. So I've learned now when I have that feeling and it's a feeling of need, right? Of desire of not being full. Mm -hmm. I now, because of lots of therapy, I have to become mindful and I have to go and touch that void inside that's still, you know, I'm middle-aged now. And although I've done a ton of work and I recognize it, it's still not filled. And I don't know if it'll ever be. I mean, that's why it's a practice. But I have to go back to that void. I have to say, you know, Melissa, you're okay. Give myself the metaphoric hug. And then once the racing stops, I don't need to engage in the buying. So now I often have a lot of shopping carts that are full and I'm about to press buy and I go through the work and I'm so proud of myself when I don't buy it because it's trying to fill an inner void with external material goods and you can't fill something that is on the inside with something on the outside. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. And yet it's so difficult, I think, for many of us who find ourselves, you know, if not in a struggle every day, just in a struggle in the moment and being able to leave that shopping cart on the sidelines, it can be really hard, but I'm proud of myself when I do it too. I want to talk more about Lifelines and I want to talk about why you started it and what we can get from it, what you are aiming to do with the programs. But before I do that, let me just take a a minute to remind everyone that grit and determination and strength and intelligence, those are the things women are made of. And when it comes to our finances, those are also the things that it takes to build a solid plan for your wealth. You can gain even more confidence in your financial future if you have an integrated approach to wealth management. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor today. You'll work with an expert to create a plan to help build and grow and protect and preserve your wealth because as a woman, you are a doer. So get the advice that you need to get it done. I am talking with Melissa Bernstein, founder of Melissa and Doug Toys, and also the mental health platform Lifelines. Tell me about Lifelines. Sure. So I think as so many things, it started with my own journey to really 
share my truth and feel that I was okay and that I could be okay being who I was. And by the way, when I did that, like so much of the burden I was carrying around completely dissipated. How funny is that? That, you know, we're hiding what we think will make the world like us more, but it's only when we share who we truly are that we kind of find that acceptance that we've always been looking for. Had to take most (laughs) of my life to do it, but I got there. But then I was doing it, of course, to feel communion with someone other than myself. Because the truth was, I had really never had authentic bonds in my life because I had never gone out as my authentic self. Like, I didn't even know who I was, much less... Yeah, I had walls up and I always wondered why, like, I never had good friends, why I didn't have these relationships for decades. And it was because friendships just meant nothing to me because I didn't show up as who I was and they weren't give and take and there was nothing meaningful about them. So I think I wanted to, through that story and showing up as who I was, I wanted to show others that they're not alone, right? Because I truly, probably my number one mindset was I am alone. There is no one who will ever truly care about me. But that was really because I was alone in my soul and I didn't care about myself. So I realized like it's first inner before we go outer. So I wanted to show others who may feel alone that they're not alone either. And then secondly, probably most importantly, that we all have the capacity to channel our darkness into light and make meaning That was so powerful because I took something that threatened to, you know, really end my life, this existential nihilism, and on my own, I channeled it into something that was able to impact others, and that was like life-giving. And I knew that so many others had that capacity. We all are born with, I believe, this innate form of self-expression that longs to like come out and touch others. But unfortunately, either because we don't have a childhood or because society or our burdens and obligations or our circumstances block us from sparking those seeds of self-expression, we don't know what they are. So I believe it's my duty to help others find what makes their heart sing. And then third is unless we stop racing outside ourselves, looking for the elusive rainbow and go inward and really accept ourselves in totality and engage in a daily practice to bring our beautiful seeds of self-expression to enable us to flourish, we will never truly be contented or realize our full potential. Lifelines, that is the genesis of where Lifeline started. You mentioned earlier in our conversation how you think this often hits people sort of at midlife. I've been struck, particularly during the pandemic, at how fragile the younger women in our community are. I took a look at a study on well-being that was done, and it looked at the four elements that comprise well-being. You look at physical, social, mental, and financial. And financial was the point that women across the board said, I am struggling with most, except for the youngest women who pointed at mental. They were having challenges with mental health and mental well-being. What do you think that women of all ages who are struggling with their mental health right now in the pandemic or as we get back out of the pandemic need to do to get ourselves back on track? It's an amazing question. And unfortunately, it's not an easy answer, you know, because the truth is, even before the pandemic, even though we might have been kind of thinking we were coasting and sort of going through our lives, the truth is most of us are living in autopilot, right? We're not really like feeling engaged in life and we're not in the present moment and we're not necessarily really flourishing. We're functioning. So I think part of it was A lot of us were right on that edge and the pandemic just threw in a whole new curveball to it. So like we've created, and for me, you know, because I am a highly emotional person and I vacillate between extreme highs and extreme lows every single day, maybe multiple times each day, because that's what my temperament to be a white space creative is. And I've had to develop this practice that I engage in every single day. And it involves our physical, 
our mental, our emotional, and our spiritual well-being and making sure that each one is tended to. And I think as women, if we neglect ourselves, if we neglect our physical health, and we believe that self-care is selfish, which was my mantra my whole life, like I'm going to shoulder it, right? I'm going to never show a chink in my armor because my only purpose is to serve others and make Mm -hmm. sure they're okay. Well, ultimately, I crumbled under that because you can only do that for so long, especially if your kids are struggling and you're shouldering their mental well-being as well. We need to ground ourselves and kind of have practices so when we start to get into the spiraling out of control, you know, like even when I have that need to shop, that we can come back to the present and learn to be okay in our center and then learn to respond from our intuitive heart, not react from our ego. Like that is, as a mother, that is essential. If you react, you're going to say things that are just going to create a whole new set of issues. (laughs) I've been there. You know, connecting. Oh my gosh. I mean, the social piece of it, you know, first connecting to ourselves authentically, because when we don't connect to ourselves authentically, then the truth is our relationships are all really superficial too. Right. So many women have these superficial relationships and long to have real relationships, but they don't know how to. Let me just pause for a second to tell everyone Masterworks is here with us again this week. We're happy to have them because alternatives are changing the face of investing, but they can seem confusing, even scary. Lately, crypto and NFTs have been the assets grabbing the most headlines, but contemporary art has long been a favorite spot for investors looking to harness a unique opportunity to potentially grow their portfolios. Contemporary art prices outpaced S&P 500 returns by 164% from 1995 to 2020. So how do you get started? Well, that's where Masterworks comes in. They're a fintech startup, giving everyone the opportunity to invest in multi-million dollar paintings by icons like Monet and Basquiat. Choosing your investment is as easy as picking your favorite artist. That's why I'm excited to offer our listeners priority access at masterworks.io with the promo code her money. See important regulation A disclosures and the offering circular at masterworks.io slash disclosure. And we're back with Melissa Bernstein. Our listeners love tactics and strategies, and I'm wondering if that practice that you described is something that you'd be willing to share. Like, what exactly do you do, and how hard is it to make it a part of your life? It's not hard. It's just a matter of committing. You know, so I think practice means that you say, this is really important to me. And a practice, you know, behavior change is one of the hardest things to measure and one of the hardest things to get people to engage in. And the first aspect of it is that you want so badly to do it that you are willing to commit some time. So the aspects of it are super easy. It's just, are you willing to commit time? So for example, our practice is broken into branches. It's the metaphor of a tree. And the first branch of it is vitalize, which is to basically take care of your tree. So it's all the things you do. And I've reframed them because they all were very punishing. I used to call it like healthy eating. And that meant that it was good and bad. And, you know, when foods are good and bad, then it becomes a deprivation, right? It's a lack versus an abundance. So now I call it nourishing my body. And that is, again, over time, I'm not there yet, but it's, can we become intuitive eaters? Can we actually think about like how I'm eating each day and can we learn to nourish our bodies? And we're going to have all kinds of tools to do this, to look at exactly how you're eating, not look at it from a perspective of like caloric intake and any of that, but more like, are the things I'm eating like making me feel good? Or am I eating these things and thinking after, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And the more we can actually look at these things with objectivity, the better we can say, today I'm going to replace one of the things that I don't feel good about with just one little thing. So it's changing one thing in your diet for like two weeks to one other thing. That's it. Maybe instead of having chips, you're going to have an apple. And that little thing is empowering, right? It's all about 
and rest. That's another one that I have a really hard time with. I used to call it sleep, but I don't like sleep because it's a waste of my time and I can't get anything accomplished. So I tended to not sleep, but we now know that sleep is directly related to longevity, productivity, well-being, your mentality. So now I basically, because I say my body needs ample rest, I force myself to sleep, I'm still not great, seven hours a night. It's a practice. It's simple, but it's a practice. So we have a whole bunch of aspects and then movement as opposed to like rigid exercise that's no fun. So I think our mindset is that if you don't enjoy it, you are never going to engage in it long term. So I've had to reframe all these things to make them more enjoyable. So we are creating a workbook now that will be very concrete, simple steps to engage in the four branches of our practice. But I can give a simple one if you want the simplest um, concrete tool. Yes. So it was my bigger journey, which I call the journey to inner space. But it's the word space and the five letters, S-P-A-C-E, of space are the tool you use whenever you become triggered. So a trigger is something you're going through your day and your child says something that completely knocks you like, I'm not going to school today. And immediately you go into hyper arousal and you say something like, you know, what are you talking about? You That can't be the case. And you're completely destabilized, right? That's reacting from your ego, adrenaline's going. So this is the way whenever something like that happens and you hopefully take that one little pause and say, I'm being triggered now, you basically stop and sense. Okay, so I'm gonna stop and say, what is going on here? And uh, you're like, wow, that just triggered me. This is before you react. Okay. And when I say sense too, I mean, maybe you ground in your senses. You just take a deep breath and you feel the breath and you're like, okay, I'm stopping. Then you perceive what's going on, perceive and picture. So now you say, oh gosh, my child said that. I'm feeling anger. What am I feeling? I'm feeling anger. I'm feeling frustration. I'm incensed. And picture it. Where is it? Right here. Ugh. It's like this ugly dark mass. And right here, I'm feeling so much stress. Okay, now you see it. A is accept and allow. So now what do I do? I'm going to accept. Wow, I became really unhinged. That was destabilizing and I feel really irate right now. And I'm going to allow the fact that that was my reaction. And this is my actual reaction to what happened. Then C is I'm going to comprehend and correct. So I'm going to try to comprehend why I felt that way. Well, it's because it triggered something in me that I'm terrified if my kid doesn't go to school, they're not going to graduate, they're not going to get a good job, they're not going to be successful, and like that triggers in me this performance pressure. And there goes my whole day, right? And my kid doesn't go to school, there goes my whole day. And there goes my whole day. Yeah, you start to catastrophize, right? But you realize it's connected. It's not necessarily that your kid said they didn't want to go to school. It's that I've got this deep sense of pressure in me that is leading me to have these mind stories. Then you try to correct it. You try to say, what is my mind story? It's that if my kid doesn't go to school, they're not going to be successful. How do you correct that? You say, you know, that's really not the case. A lot of kids don't go to school. And you start to think about how can you reframe that and really understand the situation because maybe there's a valid compromise or something like that. So you try to correct the flawed mindset that led you there and then E, is empathize and engage. So empathize is to say, first of all, you're empathizing with yourself. You're saying, it's okay, Melissa, you're human. You are going to react. That's what humans do. And it's okay that you lashed out, you got angry, you're human and you're imperfect. And that is what all humans are. And then engage is, it can be a number of things. It's engage your new mindset, right? Your corrected mindset engage with the situation, don't run away from it, you know, really try to respond to it now that you've grounded yourself. And it's continue to engage in the flow of humanity so that you don't become angry and bitter and sort of isolate yourself. So 
I go through the space exercise every time I'm triggered. I literally stop, perceive, allow, comprehend, empathize. I love it. And I think it's useful in so many situations, right? I mean, we talk about stressful situations on this show that have to do with your relationships, with your career, with your feeling of being out of control when it comes to the economic forces of the world or just the world in general. Like there's so many things that can throw us off course and having a way to get ourselves back on is really, really helpful. Melissa, if we're struggling, if we're thinking lifelines could be really useful for me, what do we do? Where do we go? How do we engage and become part of this community? Yeah, it's a free community. Doug and I have been so fortunate with Melissa and Doug. We are doing it as sort of our giving back. And you can join. We do workshops every couple weeks that are really fun and really talk about aspects of like the myths. I mean, I we try to get very real. And we have all our workshops recorded. So if you go on, you can listen to probably... I don't know. We, have, we didn't record them from the beginning, but about 25 of them are probably recorded. And we have a Facebook group that has become like a lifeline to so many people. That's at least a couple thousand people. And they really, it's beautiful. And they have done some reading groups and they've sort of formed a whole bunch of events that they engage in. And then stay tuned because we are creating our practice right now and a whole bunch of tangible products that will help us to ground ourselves in the present moment. So all those will be coming within the next six months, I would say. Amazing. Melissa, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for sharing with us and we'll send everybody your way. Thank you so much for helping so many women to not feel so disempowered and gain ability to, I would say, control their lives and make meaning. Thank you. And we'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. It's always such a pleasure to remind everyone that her money is supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union, one of my favorite credit unions, providing a wide array of financial products and services for its members. If you're currently exploring the auto market, whether you are buying a car, a new car or a used car, whether you are thinking that you didn't get a particularly good financing deal on the car that you're driving, BCU offers both financing and refinancing options. And for those of you who didn't know this, credit unions often have the very best rates for financing in the auto market. They also offer an exclusive auto buying service to save you both time and money. And you can learn more at www.bcu.org. And we're back. Katherine Tuggle joins us for our mailbag. First of all, Catherine, thanks for bringing Melissa on. I think that was an important conversation. I think it was one we probably should have had a long time ago, but kudos to you for teeing this up and recognizing that she would be so incredibly articulate on this important topic of mental health. Yeah, I saw her interview on CBS Sunday morning almost a year ago, and I could tell When I saw her speak there, she was holding nothing back. She was giving an unfiltered look at real life and what it looks like and what it looks like for her. And I was so touched by how she just boldly is seeking to help other women so that no one has to go through what she's gone through before and so that we can see that we aren't alone. And I just love the increased dialogue that we're having in this country around mental health. Yeah, Me too. It is so incredibly needed. And, you know, as I said to Melissa, we have a lot of mental health issues in my family. And I personally really appreciate this lifting of the veil. I think, you know, it does not need to be a silent struggle. It needs to be out there. We need to be able to empathize more fully. But the only way to be able to do that is if you have a greater understanding of what people are going through and how it impacts them. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a great point. So anyway, thank you for that. Of course. Let's answer some questions. Yeah. Our first question today comes to us from Diane. She writes... Hi, Jean. I've followed you for years. Love your podcast and appreciate all your advice. Thank you for that. Yeah, thanks. My husband and I are 56 and 55 respectively. We are savers, perhaps to a fault. Let me explain. 
We met in college. His parents paid his way and I paid mine, so I really didn't want our kids to struggle financially like I did. When they were young, we saved everything we could to foot the bill for college. I remember vividly the day our financial advisor told us we'd saved enough. I never thought that was a thing. We'd saved enough for college. When I hear you tell people to consider that their kids may earn scholarships, I just wish someone had mentioned that to me. Perhaps our advisor did, but everything I read and heard had left me feeling that college was unaffordable and scholarships unattainable. Nothing could be further from the truth. Our daughter earned a variety of scholarships totaling over $100,000. She also paid for room and board working as a resident assistant. And she started college with 49 credits from AP and college courses she took in high school. Our son, who's three years younger, also earned AP credit and a number of scholarships, and we are so proud of both of them. All their achievements have left us with more than $100,000 sitting in their 529 accounts. Our daughter is now 26. She considered pursuing a master's degree, but is already earning six figures and is focusing on an amazing career. Our son is 23 and working on a master's in mechanical engineering. He has a 55% scholarship for his tuition, and we're using part of the $100,000 to fund the rest. But that will still leave us with about $80,000. I read that we could take money out of the $529 without penalty if the kids earned an equal amount in scholarships. Could you explain how that works and if there's a time limit? I know we could probably save the money to fund education for future grandchildren, but right now we're ramping up for retirement and we just want to consider all our options. This may not seem like much of a problem, but I just feel like we should have planned better and I would so appreciate your thoughts. Thank you so much for all you do. Well, first of all, let me just say amazing. Like amazing, right? You guys did such an incredible job, clearly. And I'm not talking about saving for college, which you also did an incredible job at, but raising your kids, right? I mean, your kids are incredible rock stars. And you're right. This is why often the advice is, yes, try to put aside a good chunk of money for college, but don't necessarily try to save 100% of the cost because your children will, if they're applying to schools that want to have them or if they have innate academic or other talents, have a shot at a scholarship. And there are myths about this out there. Some people believe, and it's not true, that you'll lose your money in a 529 if your kids earn a scholarship. That's a myth. It's out there, but you don't have to worry about that. But you're right. There are ways to avoid penalties if you get a scholarship. And here's the way it works. If your children receive scholarships, you can take withdrawals from the 529 up to the amount of the tax-free scholarship. And where scholarships are concerned, if it's for tuition, it's tax-free. If it's for room and board, it's taxable. Living expenses are taxable. Tuition and textbooks are generally tax-free. You can take out the amount equal to the tax-free scholarship penalty-free, but you'll have to pay income taxes on the earnings. So essentially, and Joe Hurley, who is the founder of savingforcollege.com, which is a great website, he basically explains that the scholarships turn a tax-free 529 investment into a tax-deferred 529 investment. In other words, that money that you pull out will be treated like 401k dollars. And if you're at all confused about whether the scholarships that your kids received are tax-free or taxable, Saving for College actually has a really helpful scholarship tax calculator that you can use. But you aren't going to have to pay the 10% penalty that you would have had to pay if you pulled the money out for non-education related expenses, which gives you just a little bit more freedom and flexibility if you want to use that money, say, for your own retirement or anything else, rather than deciding to save it for grandchildren down the road. But again, I mean, 
you just have done such an amazing job with these kids. Congratulations on that. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a member of our community. We're thrilled to have you. Absolutely. And what a great job. Try to focus on what a great job you did rather than having some money left over. It's a good problem to have. It is a good problem to have, 100%. Our last question today comes to us from M. It is short and sweet. They write, I am now retired. How do I transition from accumulating to spending without worrying? Thank you so much. Em, that is such a good question. And it's a good question that so many retirees struggle with. I do some work with an organization called the Alliance for Lifetime Income, and they've studied this. And they have found that when retirees have converted some of their assets into a retirement paycheck or when they have pension dollars that will cover their fixed expenses and they know that that pension will come in for as long as they live, they have an easier time spending. So one thing that you may want to consider is whether you want to look at the concept of a retirement paycheck. Social Security provides a piece of your retirement paycheck. It usually covers about 40% of living expenses for retirees, but there's also the opportunity if you're interested in converting a chunk of that money that you've accumulated into an annuity that could last as long as you do, or working with a financial advisor that can help you with a plan so that you understand how much you can spend every month without worrying. A financial advisor can sit with you and sort of map out scenarios. If the market goes up this much and your assets are invested in this way, the chances that your money will last you for 30, 40, 50 years are X, Y, and Z. I've done this kind of analysis with my own financial advisor and I find it really helpful. And more to your point, my mother has done it and it enables her to feel very comfortable with the amount of money that she spends on a month-to-month basis. So if you haven't had that conversation with a financial advisor, I would have it. If you go to our website and you click on the Find an Advisor button, it will take you to through a process that will connect you with a financial advisor from Edelman Financial Engines, which is our sponsor. And these folks, I've gotten to know them. They do this all the time, and they're not going to try to sell you anything. So I, I like that about them. I would seriously consider doing that. The other thing that I think sometimes makes people who are entering retirement feel a little bit better is just soft peddling the spending in the first couple of years of retirement to give yourself a little bit more wiggle room to know that you have the ability to increase it as the years go on. And particularly right now with inflation such a concern, I might look to do a little bit of that as well. But congratulations on your retirement. I hope you're loving it. Thank you so much, Jean. And it's nice to watch your mom going through these steps in retirement now so you can see, you know, how all this works. Yeah, it's been hugely educational and really nice to see the planning process at work, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't know if you know this story, but we hired this advisor for my mother when my father died and when I saw what an amazing job he and his colleagues were doing with her, I switched to him. So it's been a really great relationship. I'm happy to have it in my life and I know my mother is as well. Love that. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And in today's Thrive, what to do if you haven't been able to save money for a while? If you feel like you blinked and the pandemic years passed you by along with your savings account, you are not alone. With growing inflation, supply chain woes that have made things more expensive, lost jobs, and many other negative financial factors, many of us feel like we've been playing catch up. But the good news is it's never too late 
slate to get back on track. At HerMoney.com, we break down how you can start building up a savings balance you're proud of before the end of 2022. So for starters, take a moment to revisit your budget. We've said it before, we'll say it again, but the first step of every financial plan is creating a budget. It's one of those fundamentals for money management that can't be ignored. After a year of not saving, whether it be from a job loss or another personal reason, it's critical to take a look at what you're earning, what you're spending, and where it's going. And speaking of those expenses, I'm talking about tracking them. If you look at each month's statement and wonder how you spent so much so quickly, you don't have a clear view of your expenses. Try printing out your bank and credit card statements and going through each expense. Then rate it as a need or want or wish. Then you can tackle each of these lists to find cost savings. Even with the needs, you might be able to find a cheaper alternative. Finally, automate your savings. One of the easiest ways to get your savings back on track is to automate bank transfers into your savings account. Your bank will let you decide exactly when, how much, and to where you want to transfer money every month or every pay period. And this out-of-sight, out-of-mind method, yeah, it works really well for people who struggle to save. As you've probably heard me say before, if you can't see it and you can't touch it, you can't spend it. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Melissa Bernstein for the candid conversation about our mental health. It is so incredibly important to take care of ourselves and the women we love, especially during such a difficult season. I'm so thankful that we had this conversation today. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines, BCU, and for this week, Masterworks as well. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.